In Douglas Adams' much-beloved Space Odyssey, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the author portrays the human race as a sordid and melancholic lot. Driven by self-interest and hindered by their own ineptitude, they march unwittingly towards an abrupt and inevitable extinction. The Vogons, responsible for humankind's termination, are monsters of a different making. Adams describes them as grotesque in appearance, bad-tempered, bureaucratic, officious, and callous in nature. They're not evil. They're just unpleasant. A legion of irksome government officials enforcing the will of the galactic governing body with casual indifference. They're also famously bad poets. Process and procedure are their highest virtues. In their minds, destroying Earth is simply a matter of course. It's a logical solution to a system-wide inefficiency, one as sensible as diverting an interstate highway past a one-light town. Um, people of Earth, as you are probably aware, plans for the development of the outlying regions of the galaxy involve the building of a hyperspace express route through your star system. They announced their intentions with a brief statutory announcement. We regret to inform you of your impending doom. Then, in a blink, the entirety of human existence gone. Obliterated, like a long-forgotten bus town on a Midwestern highway. Here one minute, gone the next. Erased by solution-seeking bureaucrats in pursuit of progress. In Adam's world, Dolphins, by contrast, operate in the realm of whimsy, unencumbered by the weight of existence. They spend their days cavorting and cutting through the water. They move with blissful ease. Joy is their noblest of pursuits. They leave the tedium of scientific inquiry and the endless march forward to lesser species. As Adams writes, I quote, on the planet Earth, man had always assumed that he was more intelligent than dolphins because he had achieved so much, the wheel, New York, wars, and so on. Whilst all the dolphins had ever done was muck around about in the water, having a good time. But conversely, the dolphins had always believed that they were far more intelligent than man, for precisely the same reasons." End quote. And whether allegorical or vetted by the author's own research, Dolphins in the Hitchhiker universe possess a latent intelligence. In the novel, they are, in fact, the second smartest species on Earth. Their ranking is high. Dolphins are smarter than humans, but occupy the second space, just behind mice. Mice, meanwhile, are physical manifestations of a much smarter species. These hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings are interplanetary interlopers. They've taken on the form of Rodentia, during their time on planet Earth, a planet they created in their quest to find the answer to life's ultimate question. As the second smartest species in the Hitchhiker's universe, dolphins are privy to plans for Earth's expiry. They try in vain to warn their human counterparts, but the human race dismisses the cetacean warnings as amusing attempts to punch football or whistle for tidbits. Douglas Adams' writing offers a fantastical look at the secret world of dolphins, but the underpinning of these sketches hints at a greater truth. Dolphins are in fact very intelligent. Their brains are large, relative to the size of their bodies. The calculation determining this ratio, the encephalization quotient, places dolphins above any other species, 
save for humans. They also have pronounced neo and cerebral cortexes, a sign of intelligence. And like humans, they have a higher than average count of gyrus or folds on the surface of their brains. These physiological attributes all contribute to increased surface area on the brain. Increased surface area on the brain means more neurons firing. And more neurons firing means greater potential for abstract thought. A dolphin's physiology indicates heightened intellectual capability, but it's their behavior that confirms their intelligence. Researchers across the globe have seen dolphins engage in the extraordinary. In 1984, researchers noticed a peculiar adaptation among the Shark Bay population of Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins. They watched as the mammals fit modified basket sponges over their rostra. With this cover in place, the dolphins plowed and prodded the ocean floor. This simple spongy modification prevented discomfort and injury to their sensitive snouts. Undeterred by the rock fragments and coral shrapnel littering the seabed, the dolphins foraged and fed on the bottom-feeding fish buried deep in the sand below. Researchers determined that this adaptive hunting technique is a learned behavior. Some time ago, some clever dolphin discovered this sponge solution. She then taught her offspring how to hunt using the technique. And they, in turn, taught their progeny, and so on. A research duo familiar with the Shark Bay study wanted to learn more about this phenomenon. And so they affixed a basket sponge to the end of a pole, and they tried to replicate the dolphin's behavior. They found that their sponge pulled contraption startled fish from hiding every nine minutes. This return meant the sponge technique was a worthwhile and productive means of hunting for the dolphin populations of Shark Bay. Many cetaceans rely on echolocation to find their food. The bladder's controlling buoyancy in many fish species are excellent acoustic markers. Sonar pings alert hungry dolphins to prey location. Yet many bottom-feeding fish do not have swim bladders. This makes echolocation a less effective means of hunting. And so the Shark Bay Dolphins sponge technique is a creative solution to their biological need for food. Oceans away, at a marine institute off the coast of Honduras, dolphins engage in a different kind of ideation. They've learned basic sign language. They can read and respond to printed 2D symbols. When prompted, they can perform dozens of dazzling aerial and underwater maneuvers. The cetaceans of the Roatan Institute for Marine Sciences are, to put it simply, extraordinary. In one study, Roatan Institute scientists work with a pair of male dolphins named Hector and Han to test cetacean creativity. Their trainer, Terry Bolton, runs the pair through several tricks in their repertoire. Hector and Han flit and flip through the routines, but then Terry changes the script. She signs innovate using a known hand signal. The dolphins then perform a new trick, and another, and a third. Hector and Han have learned that innovate means they must perform new tricks in the session. And then Terry signs tandem. The dolphins coordinate their efforts. They perform tricks in unison. All actions are new to the day's session. A comparative psychologist named Stan Kuja observes the action underwater. K-1 
camera and hydrophone in hand, he watches as the pair chatter and click, and then move as one. Throughout the demonstration, they perform trick after trick, never repeating, always in sync. Are they communicating? Are they cooperating? Are their vocalizations evidence of a latent desire for social cooperation and strategic creative collaboration? Such studies on dolphin behavior reveal some truths about cetacean intelligence and creativity. They have the capacity to remember events and learn new concepts. They can iterate on prior experiences. Together they form complex social relationships. Cooperatively, they raise their young, or alloparenting, in zoological parlance. They can teach and learn new techniques for hunting and finding food. Their social structures of alliances and competition are interwoven and incredibly complex. Their communication is also nuanced. Researchers found that cetaceans have their own regional dialects. They even have unique whistles for members of their pod, akin to nicknames amongst a group of friends. Moreover, they can understand both sign language and interpret the syntax of language. In 2001, researchers worked with a pair of dolphins to test cetacean self-awareness. They devised a study using a mirror and some body markings to test mirror recognition. Both dolphins responded to the markings on their bodies, indicating that they were in fact self-aware, at least visually. American psychologist Gordon Gallup Jr. developed the first mirror test in 1970. The process is straightforward. An animal is first anesthetized. Then the researchers place stickers or other markings on an unseen part of the animal's body. When they awake, they are then given access to a mirror. If the animal touches or responds to their marking, they're thought to be aware of their own bodies, rather than viewing their mirror double as a separate animal. Taken together, cetacean research posits that the taxa is capable of hyperintelligent abstract thought. But behavioral studies like Dr. Gallup's mirror test may obfuscate the real breadth of the species' true potential for intelligent and creative thought and action. Through comparative study, we view cetacean intelligence through the lens of our own human biases and assumptions, or in contrast to other creatures. We take a human-centric view of the world where intelligence is monolithic and measurable on a linear scale. Dr. Kujai, the underwater observer in the Han and Hector study, wasn't satisfied with the standardized approach to cetacean research. He implored his fellow researchers to ask, not how smart are dolphins, but how are dolphins smart? This simple reframing respects the unique specialization of species and acknowledges how little we actually do know about the life of this creature. Sure, dolphins can learn sign language, they can learn show-stopping, jaw-dropping tricks, they're capable of learning, performing, and repeating complex movements. They can pass a mirror test, but they're also able to build tools suited to their environment. They can teach these learned behaviors to others within their pod. They can also cooperate when hunting or raising offspring. Evolutionarily, their intelligence and creativity has furthered the survival of their species. And still we don't know what their unique consciousness might feel like. Measuring dolphin intelligence via human metrics is reductive. It's shorthand. Of course, from a research standpoint, our approach represents sensible and sound science. When we think about human creative potential, we tend to qualify and quantify. We categorize. 
our mathematical minds work to sort, process, and parse. But there is no holistic creativity metric. There are no standardized tests that capture our true potential for abstract thought in the moment. Assessments that attempt to gauge our creative ideation are largely detached from the real demands of day-to-day -day life. Many of those tests demonstrate weak or inconsistent relationships with creative production in real life. Of course, we do have the test of time. We can look retrospectively at the thought, action, and attitude of people or groups that shift paradigms and create culture. Though we find commonalities such as persistence, passion, risk-taking, unconventionality, strong self-beliefs, the recipe for sustained creativity in life is not unidimensional. If we try to align our creative potential to a single model, such as coming up with lots of original uses for a common object, such as a brick, we reduce its complexity and our understanding of what actually brings creativity to pass. Narrow thinking about creativity makes it exclusive and it diminishes the value of our individual differences. We neglect the myriad inputs, a plethora of creative resources that inform our creative output. Of course, researchers must develop and apply methods to measure and study the creative potential and production of individuals. Though these methodologies continue to expand, the narrow focus to essentialize creative potential to a single score has likely contributed to powerful cultural myths that suggest some people are born creative and others are not, and that creativity is all about a single skill, such as novel thinking or representative accuracy in drawing or painting. Myths are powerful. What if instead we approach creative potential as collaborative with others, multidimensional in its origins, individualized and ever-changing as we move through the world, open and receptive? Is creative potential not cultural, social, emotional, psychological, and cognitive all at once? And as Elizabeth Gilbert suggests, don't creative ideas and possibilities have a life of their own, an existence we simply can't explain with our current understanding and scientific methods? Wouldn't accounting for the multitudinous and diverse inputs create a gradient across the whole human experience? Do you often stop to ponder about how huge the universe is? Do you often stop to ponder about how huge the universe is? Do you often stop to ponder about how huge the universe is? What happens to how we think about our own creative potential if we approach the concept expansively rather than from a narrow, constricted point of view? Well, researchers Dr. Todd Lubart and colleagues proposed an expansive approach to conceptualize creativity. They wanted to consider the myriad individual approaches to creative thought and behavior. Our past experience, our values, the social and emotional state of our body-mind. In short, our creative resources, our creative DNA. Dr. Lubart and his team pulled from a rich history of research and theory to propose that each individual had their own creative imprint, which needed to be assessed multidimensionally if we hoped to further our understanding of creative thought and action. They and many others have worked to investigate these differences. The creativity field continues to look closer still, like viewing a fingerprint under a microscope. What function do our mindsets, our self-beliefs, and our attitudes play to convert creative potential to creative action? Is creative behavior a matter of agentic and purposeful action, as researchers Drs. Masech, Kaurowski, and Ron Begetto suggest? Are we all filled with creative potential and some of us just more restricted by our own perceptions, values, and beliefs? When we move beyond the idea 
that creative potential is only a matter of creative thinking or making, we can learn how to cultivate our own potential and those around us with greater care. For instance, what happens if we consider creative potential not as the collection of an individual's resources, but a conglomerate mashup of the resources of many? What if we studied the life of an idea rather than the one individual who may carry that idea along the final stretch of a 300-mile team marathon to the finish line, ultimately receiving credit from culture and society? Why do we obsess over celebrating the achievements of an individual and ignore the many others who carried the idea forward or were instrumental in nurturing the creative resources of that person? Dr. Lubart and colleagues developed a simple idea. We all have our own set of creative resources depending on the context and the task and the domain and our past experience. These malleable dimensions of our creative potential grow with each failure and success. We build them by interacting with the world at large and by working from the space we create within it. They develop through constant iteration and feedback loops. They grow as we challenge our assumptions and move toward rather than away from uncertainty. And they evolve over time. We take risks and reflect, adding new creative strategies and beliefs to our quiver of resources. We build routines and rituals that habituate ways of being and thinking. Our habits help us draw on our creative resources instinctively over time. Some exercises and experiences are more powerful than others. Other resources may be more important for different occasions. As we become more aware and strategic or metacognitive, our self-beliefs and our values around creativity grow, feeding the nutrient cycle in the oceans of our collective creative potential. Ultimately, our creative potential depends on the mindset, attitude, and beliefs, and the values that we carry into each moment that demands our creativity. They're a product of our individual experiences, the lives we lead, and the people we surround ourselves with in the flesh, through social media, through books, and other means of exchange. Moreover, these creative resources influence the way we engage our creativity every day. Ascribing a monolithic value or singular idea to our creative potential or our creative process will inevitably mute the colors that form the unique set of resources we bring to any challenge. The fact is everyone is creative and everyone is creative in ways that are entirely their own and in connection to others and the world around us. In our quest to compartmentalize and codify the natural world of dolphins and many other creatures and plants, we tend to use a scientific shorthand. Like Dr. Kuja's dolphin observations, we need to think about our own creative potential by asking, how are we creative? Rather than, how creative are we? We need to hold an expansive curiosity about dolphins thinking, interacting, and being in the world, pushing hard against our assumptions and our fear of the unknown. And so it goes with our own big curiosity about our creative potential. In each moment of fear and uncertainty, faced day in, day out, that invite and welcome creative resources. After all, everyone is creative. It's a natural state 
for humanity. It is our condition. We all have our own resources that we bring to any creative challenge. We approach creative challenges with the nuance of a perspective shaped by a many-pathed life that we have led. A reframing of creative potential needs to start simply with how, not how much. So, in examining creativity in your own life, go ahead. Ask yourself today, tomorrow, and in connection with others, how am I creative? How are you creative? Thank you for tuning in to the Inside the Box podcast. I'm Ross Anderson, your host, and this podcast is brought to you by the MakeSpace Project, funded by a U.S. Department of Education grant to bring creative engagement into schools all over the country. You can find out more at www.makespaceproject.org. May we all find creative engagement in moments of our days and share the delight with others.